Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United WeCast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1. You can hear me on Fox Sports Radio. You can read me on Bleacher Report. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Bucher, R-I-C-B-U-C-H-E-R. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear just me talking about what I exclusively feel are the most important or interesting topics in the sports world, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that's here. A couple of things I want to get into in today's podcast First of all, I hope you, all of you are staying safe and sane. It appears, both for the NBA and all of us in general, that things are lifting when it comes to the pandemic and the sheltering in place or the restrictions. I'm not going to get into the politics of what's working and not working and the confusion over the protocol. I'm just going to say I'm glad we are getting back to some sense of normalcy. A couple of things I want to get into. Uh, number one, some people that we've lost from the NBA community, as I knew it, uh, in recent days, and acknowledge their passing and their connection to me. I also want to get into why this was going to be an interesting NBA Finals even before we had the interruption. Because, and one of the people that we lost brought this to mind, that Developing a culture and how cultures, winning cultures are developed is a big part of ultimately winning a championship. And for the first time, maybe last year actually was the first time where we saw a culture that was incubating and then sprung to the top and won a championship with relatively new parts. That's generally not how it goes. There has to be a precedent set. You can add a piece that makes the difference. That's happened many times. But developing a culture, there's always been a certain way. And certainly when it comes to dynasties in the NBA, they only happen when you have a lasting culture. And we really don't have that right now with any of the top contending teams. I'll explain more as we get into it. 
A lot of people have had to contemplate their mortality and deal with death far more than they ever have in recent months because of the coronavirus. Now, another layer was added to that this past week as the NBA lost several notable, notable figures, at least to me, that were not, to my knowledge, caused by the virus. And they were, in the order I heard of their passing, Roger B. Brown, a one-of-a-kind writer and radio host based in the Fort Worth, Dallas area. Marty McNeil, a longtime Sacramento Kings beat writer and columnist for the Sacramento Bee. And legendary Hall of Fame coach, Utah, Utah Jazz coach, Jerry Sloan. I knew Roger the least of all three, but he's here uh, on this list uh, of three. And I say these things happen in threes, unfortunately, and that seems to be holding true. Uh, because he made such an impression. I saw him in NBA circles early on in my career, and he had me as a guest on his radio program quite a few times. Now, I've had that level of interaction with quite a few people during my career, but Roger stood out because his approach to covering sports was just so personal. There's an apocryphal story about him writing a column about going fishing with Michael Jordan, and Charles Barkley, in which he did not have a single quote from either Michael or Charles. Now, in today's age, you could get away with that. and In fact, no one would be necessarily startled by it. But back then, it's hard to imagine that anybody could actually get that in the newspaper. There would have been a, a, a editor or two, demanding that some sort of quotes be used. But that's the magic of Roger Brown, or Roger B. Brown, rather, in that he kind of broke the rules, and he was so unique and so entertaining that he was given that latitude. And I guess in some ways he made an impression on me because I I envied that coming in. I certainly didn't have that latitude at that point. Um, I also just liked how it was, he had a very down-home touch, but he made being or talking, uh, being with him or talking sports with him, made it feel big. And it started with his guest booker, who would call and say that I was being invited to be a guest on the Roger B. Brown show. And the dude said it as if I were being given a slot on The Tonight Show. I get a lot of calls to be on radio shows, much like Rogers. But this always felt different, and I could never say no for that reason. And I can't, can't put my finger on why, but then talking with Roger B. on the radio had a unique aspect to it as well, a, a kind that always made me smile. I, it just it was enjoyable. Maybe it was how unpretentious he was or how he didn't care at all about journalistic precepts. Uh, we're generally, and I, I fall into the same uh, mistake in when listening to someone, whether it's doing the podcast or on a, on a radio show and go, making sounds of agreement while they're talking. It's, can be, it can be distracting. And when I'm disciplined, I don't do it. Roger would do it all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anytime he agreed with anything you were saying, mm-hmm. 
And somehow it wasn't a distraction for me. Uh, He was just conversating, as we like to say. And as unique as his viewpoint or the way he expressed it might be, it was is how he's listened that really stood out. And it wasn't just the, the sounds that he was making that told me that. He seemed to listen intently as if what you were saying was important, taking in every bit of information and thoughtfully mulling it over word by word. He's gone and our sports world is lesser for it. Now, Marty Mack, Marty McNeil, was something else entirely. As a beat writer, he walked around as if the Kings and their arena were his domain and the players, coaches, and even owners were simply passing through. And again, learned a lot from him, envied him in the way he approached things. He didn't do it in some lordly or arrogant way. He just sauntered around checking in with people throughout the arena as if he were the caretaker, not a reporter. And while there were places off limits to him, as there are for all media, at least officially, I always had the sense that if he really wanted to, he could get anywhere he needed to in that building. Owner's suite, uh, the training room, you name it, family room. If Marty needed to be there, somebody was going to was going to allow it, or he could walk in and nobody was going to make a fuss about it. Some of that might have a little to do with Sacramento, basically a, a, a one newspaper town at the time, but I would say more so it had to do with, with Marty. He was also one of the first to demonstrate to me that conversations with the notebook closed were essential to having meaningful conversations with the notebook open. He'd wander around the locker room, be dipping his head into one player's locker or another, share a bit of chit-chat, and then move on. Even if there were other people talking, if there was a conversation, to just kind of lean in, say something, move on. He, like I said, he operated like he owned the place. Uh, he was also an expert at recognizing a locker room's invisible hierarchy. And I learned a lot by watching him and seeing him recognize that. And he was not afraid to call out a player for being a jackass. If Marty was asking him some questions and the player was being difficult and he felt that the questions were legit and generally they were, I never knew a case that they weren't, he would call him out or he would make fun of him. And you could tell, like, instantly when that happens, when there's an interaction between a reporter or a media person and an athlete. That is a challenge within the locker room. And I generally, when something like that would bubble up, I'd look around to see how the other players were reacting to that. And if they weren't quick to indicate in some way that they were behind their teammate in that exchange, or even if they were just Switzerland, they were just... Like, they were staying out of it. It told me a lot. And it told me that that player didn't have quite as much, uh, I don't know, authority as he might have been acting in the moment. Or that they agreed somehow in some way with what the reporter was challenging him on. Now, all of this is from an era 
when beat writers were lords, an era that started before I became one, a beat writer that is, along with ESPN becoming the behemoth that it is. I tasted what that lordship was just long enough with the Warriors to get hired away by the Washington Post. And then I was there basically just a year, which was my stepping stone to ESPN. Now, being with the Washington Post, you you also were a lord. But Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, uh, those, those were papers where it was understood. You had a national presence. But where I started, the San Jose Mercury News or the Sacramento Bee, those beat writers carried weight too. Now, more than anything, I wanted the chance to write the way I saw writers at Sports Illustrated approach the job during a summer internship there that I had when I was still in college. But I also saw that the beat writer lordships were about to be overthrown. Not because the beat writers somehow went soft or lost their connections or were any different, but because the places that employed them Newspapers were losing their leverage. Uh, Once upon a time, how they, the newspapers, portrayed a team or a coach or a player is how they were portrayed both inside and outside that particular community, which meant how they were portrayed to the rest of the league, which meant to all the prospective other employers uh, that a coach or GM might want to work for or would in some at some point in the future it mattered and i know firsthand simply because of where i was how newspapers missed the boat first of all they missed the boat because craigslist came along and took away a huge piece of their revenue producing i don't know why newspapers didn't jump on that and find a way. Maybe maybe they simply didn't have the wherewithal. Maybe it was too late, but that was a huge loss. But there was also a lack of recognition of what the internet was going to become. And I knew this firsthand because I was at the San Jose Mercury News, the newspaper in Silicon Valley. And I was approached about doing a weekly column. You're going to laugh at this for America Online which at that time was the big conduit when it came to news or emails or whatever. That was, they, they were the first out of the block. It's quaint now. I actually still have my AOL account because I just, one, because it, it feels like an heirloom at this point. Um, not that I use it a whole lot, but I, I just can't part with it. Bill Simmons, by the way, I think still has his, AOL account as well. In any event, they approached me about doing a weekly NBA notes column along the lines of what Peter Gammons did as a baseball writer for the Boston uh, Boston Globe. And uh, it was, didn't mean that I had to leave the Mercury News. I could do it in addition. But it was going to pay me a considerable amount of money, almost as much as I was making as a full-time beat writer for, uh, for the Merck. And 
So the negotiations went on and the Mercury News insisted that the content reside on the Mercury News site and that AOL could link to, could put a link on AOL and drive people or force people to come to the Mercury News site to read my content. And ultimately, AOL was not going to do that. They said, you can link Mercury News stuff to AOL. We'll flip that around, but we're not going to have our content sitting on your site or the content that we're paying for. And so the deal couldn't be brokered. And obviously, I lost a lot of money. It would have would have allowed me to start creating a national uh, presence without having to leave the Merck, leave the Bay Area. And I had no intention, I had no desire to do any of that until they they got in the way of this deal in for a silly thing. I mean, think about it. You have AOL as this huge platform, far bigger than the Mercury News, and you can have people learning or being exposed to the Mercury News on that big platform and draw them back. But you are not inclined to do that because you get into a hissy fit over where the actual content is sitting. And again, this is in Silicon Valley. So at that point, I felt like my days at the Mercury News were numbered. And when the Washington Post came along, uh, well, I, I don't know that I would have turned down the Washington Post in any event, but I certainly, uh, the, the Merck made it a lot easier for me to make that decision. And then when I got to the Washington Post, George Solomon, the sports editor, when I got there, said, just give me a year before you go to ESPN. I thought it was a ridiculous, a ridiculous thing to say because as far as I knew, ESPN had no idea. They knew who I was. I'd broken a couple stories, and I'm going to tell you why I knew they knew who I was, but they never approached me about a job. Again, more than anything, I wanted to write long form uh, about sports and what I saw at Sports Illustrated. And so uh, that's partly the ESPN the magazine is what is the outlet that first approached me about coming to, uh, to ESPN. So, um, but this was all in the transition because when beat writers were king or lords, national outlets couldn't top a local take and usually they didn't try. Instead, they fed off of it or replicated it. When I broke Chris Webber wanting out of Golden State and Don Nelson's eventual forced res resignation, ESPN came to me, the San Jose Mercury News beat writer, to explain what was going on. And I wasn't alone. ESPN routinely leaned on local writers or columnists. Now, the internet grew. Newspapers failed to jump on that vehicle to, to deliver news early. And ESPN.com put together its own legion of local beat writers, sometimes hiring away the guys that were once the newspaper's beat person. And now the competition was on. Now, Marty didn't go that route. What I will appreciate, appreciate about him always is that in the midst of newspapers being diminished, he never lost his dignity or his swagger. 
He built his domain off of his work, his knowledge, and his personality. And he trusted to the end that it would be enough. And it was. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So if these things do indeed come in threes, former jazz coach Jerry Sloan completes the triad. Now, when I first heard he had passed, there was a part of me that was actually relieved because the last time I had seen him, he was clearly suffering, I believe it was Alzheimer's or similar disease. He was suffering from it. Uh, The light was gone from his eyes. He just, he was not the same. And if I was a loved one, I might have felt different. But as someone who knew him from afar, had plenty of interaction with him over the years, but uh, still was not, didn't have an intimate relationship with him. I just admired the man. He was, a, he was a man of the soil. He had this man of the soil toughness and charm. It was, it was just hard to see because it was the exact opposite. He looked vulnerable. And maybe some of that, too, is because that deterioration is potentially waiting for all of us. Anyway, it was, it was sad to see, and him not being who I knew him to be, uh, I, there was a part of me that felt like he's, maybe he's in a better place. Now, my FS1 colleague, Doug Gottlieb, posted a tweet after his passing about Jerry living a long time with Darren Williams' knife in his back. And that's a shot at Darren Williams, who left the Jazz, went to the Nets, and uh, Darren was supposed to be the next uh, great point guard to follow in the footsteps of, of John Stockton. And I don't think it's any accident that this happened, uh, Darren doing what he did, leaving the way he did, um, criticizing Jerry the way he did on the heels of the decision. Uh, LeBron James's move, along with a number of other superstars, to become free agents and then choose not only where they were going to play, but who they were going to play with. I, I don't know. Maybe Darren still would have made that move, but he wouldn't have made it as cavalierly as he did without the decision. This is what I consider the negative impact of the decision. I can appreciate the guts that it took for LeBron to to do what he did. Certainly, he caught enough flack for doing it. Some of it justified because of the way that he did it. And I love that players gained more autonomy, as they should. There's Superstar players generate a ton of money far more than they actually make, as crazy as that sounds, because of what they're making. But that's the truth. So getting to decide where they're going to play and who they're going to play with, 
look, that's that's what everybody has in their jobs. You you have that freedom of choice, and and I support that. But when it comes to building teams, it has to be in the right hands. And I believe that what it introduced is that any player who's considered a superstar, particularly in a small market, now you run the risk of them making smart decisions, both for themselves and for those around them. And I don't know that that's happening on a consistent basis, which is why we see what we see. Thinking about Jerry and his success in the Utah Jazz also made me think about the importance of the GM coach superstars dynamic and how vital that is for a franchise to win a championship. You need someone in the front office endorsing the coach's philosophy, both in words and action, and you need someone in the locker room and ideally your best player or players in the locker room. It's funny because no one demonstrated this more than the Chicago Bulls. Jerry, And yet Jerry Krause, the GM, got universally ripped for saying that organizations, not individuals, win championships. And the suggestion was that Jerry was trying to steal some of the shine from Michael Jordan. And everybody generally looks at it and says, well, Michael Jordan was the key to all those championships, as he was. But he didn't win them alone. You know who else believed that organizations, not individuals, win championships? Phil Jackson. And he demonstrated it. And it's why the Chicago Bulls were six-time champions. Because Phil Jackson, just like Jerry Krause, believed in organization. He believed in the system. His belief in the triangle superseded his belief in Michael Jordan. That's why he still ran the triangle when Michael Jordan wasn't there. It's why he ran the triangle when he, or insisted that the Knicks run the triangle when he was the GM. If you want an example of your players or your best players and your coach and your GM not being on the same page. Now, Jerry Sloan, what he ran into with Darren Williams was he suddenly had a player who didn't believe in what Jerry Sloan believed in. When Jerry had Carl Malone and John Stockton, he had two guys in the locker room who did. He also had Scott Layden as his GM, who did. And so I look at the successful organizations, and they all have that lineage. Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili, and to a lesser extent, Tony Parker, with R.C. Buford and Greg Popovich. Now, one of the things that's missing in today, and I don't know if we're ever going to get it back, is the fact that we don't have that development of culture, or it has to be done in an expedited fashion. Because I look at, for example, the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat still have the same culture. LeBron James, the reason that they have continue to be successful or overachieve is simply because they have a culture. 
because Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra are in lockstep. So then now it's a matter of finding players uh, or star players that will be able to reinforce that in the locker room. They had that with Dwayne Wade. LeBron James was brought in, really didn't fit the culture, but he acclimated to it and he became part of it. But he didn't start that culture. Now I look at, at funny thing is, is that I, I look at Sloan and Malone and Stockton and Layden and I think, okay, so they didn't win a championship. They had all the earmarks of San Antonio. They had that consistency. They had a culture. They had a connection between all those pieces. So ultimately, why didn't they get it done when the Spurs did? Well, I think some of that had to do with simply the fact that Spurs had a little more talent. It's why Tim Duncan always is on the list of great power forwards for me ahead of Carl Malone. It's also John Stockton was, he had the temperament, but he didn't necessarily have the the physique to dominate his position. 185 pounds, he was, he did it on guile, he did it on enormous hands, his hands are like the size of, I mean, close to what Kawhi and Michael Jordan have. That was a big secret of, of his ability, passing ability, is that he could, he could palm a ball like a Nerf ball. Um, but, you know, the, the bottom line is, really, the reason that John Carl and Jerry never had a ring is because of Jordan. Because I really don't see a distinction between Gary Payton and Sean Kemp with the Sonics or especially Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde De- Drexler. They are Payton and the Rain Man, or Stockton Malone, if not for Jordan's 18-month hiatus. They just, they were able to sneak in. And I think it says something about the Spurs that they never won back-to-back championships. They had a great system. They had guys dedicated to it. Their, their trick was longevity and maintaining that and a certain consistency so that when there was a gap between, say, the Lakers doing what they did, creating their dynasty, the Spurs were always there ready to pop up and take advantage of it. Beginning with the the lockout in 99 and the Bulls being no more. I do have a story for you. I was actually going to start with this. It's a Jerry Sloan story. And it gives you a sense of just how tough he was and how respected he was. And so it was a game up in Portland. Jazz versus the Blazers. And Carl Malone was dealing with some sort of a knee issue. We went in to talk to him before the game uh, about that. And he had a a rubber sleeve on his knee, on, on, on the knee that was bothering him. Because he was going to give it a go. It was, everybody was thought, oh, you know, he's not going to play and but Malone was going to be a tough guy. He was going to tough it out. And he was putting a rubber sleeve on, on the knee that was bothering him. And Jerry Sloan walks by and says, you're not going to wear that bleep rag, are you? And think of a, a very colorful 
graphic term for uh, a tampon. That's what, that's the phrase that Jerry used. You're not going to wear that rag, are you? And just kept walking. Didn't say another word. And sure enough, game starts. And there's Malone lining up. He's out there. The knee is bare. He's not wearing anything. That was the power of Jerry Sloan. And Malone was fine. As far as I don't remember any incident. Played the game. I don't remember who won. But it wasn't as if Carl was affected. That was the power of Jerry Sloan. That's, that's a culture. The other part that I, I think about is uh, the criticism of various coaches. Mike D'Antoni comes to mind in particular. How he's the reason that the Rockets have fallen short. Because he doesn't coach defense. Yeah, I'm not buying that. And I'm, and I'm reminded of it because of thinking about the Utah Jazz and what made them great and what made the Spurs great and what made the Bulls great and what's made every championship team great is that connection between GM, coach, and the best players. They're all on one page. Mike D'Antoni coaches defense. You think James Harden is all in on that? Or does Mike D'Antoni coach to fit James Harden and make the most of what James Harden is. I honestly believe that's what's going on here. And I believe that's what Daryl Morey, the GM, has tried to do. Hasn't been a winning formula. I think also in part because Daryl and Mike, while I don't know that they'd ever admit it, don't see the game quite the same way. I do believe Mike and James do. But as I said, you need all three working on the same page with not just the same page, but with the same dedicated belief on this is how we win. So look across the the spectrum. And if you don't see that, then you don't have a chance. Steve Kerr, Bob Myers, Steph Curry, they believed in the same vision and it's worked. Now, that's what makes this year interesting because I don't know about that connection when it comes to the Lakers and LeBron or the Clippers and Kawhi. It worked in Toronto last year. And this is actually, maybe this is the beginning of something new. Maybe we're going to break the mold here. There had been a certain culture created in Toronto, but there were a lot of changes too. Nick Nurse coming in as the head coach. Kawhi Leonard coming in as the best player. Extraordinary turn. Which makes me wonder, are they a team like the Detroit Pistons or the San Antonio Spurs, who very good, but then had that opportunity to jump in and take advantage of an opening? We'll see. Whatever happens, there's going to be a team that doesn't have a culture, has not had a culture established. And that goes for Milwaukee too. That could very well end up with a championship. And that was going to be the case whether we had the finals or not uh, without interruption. All right, that does it for this episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It means a lot to 
our advertisers and it's the way of creating value for us. I'm just gonna be straight up honest. We don't charge. So that's a way that we have of creating value and potentially making money. And look, I love doing it, but rather not do it for free if I don't have to. Uh, in the next podcast, we're I'm sure we're going to have NBA news and we'll get into exactly what that is and what it means going forward. In the meantime, please stay safe and sane out there. And as always, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.